0: On Wednesday, April 28th, Michael Collins, Gemini 10, and Apollo 11 astronaut died at the age of 90.
1: One of our true heroes, we decided that we wanted to do a whole extra episode away from our weekly schedule in order to fully celebrate his life and legacy.
0: To help us do this, we're joined by author and historian, Francis French.
1: Of course, we'd love to hear your own Michael Collins memories and stories, so do get in touch. But for now, here is our Space and Things attempt to honor Michael Collins. This
2: operation is somewhat like the periscope of a submarine all you see is the three of us but beneath the surface are
1: thousands and thousands of others to all those i would like to say thank you very much i'm emily carney and i'm dave giles it's been a strange few days has not it emily Uh, it's such a weird thing when one of your childhood heroes passes away i didn't know him personally but I've been walking around as if one of my friends has died. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was weird. Like, I was, me and my husband were talking about it. Because my husband obviously knows who Michael Collins is. Me saying this, I'm not passing judgment on Neil Armstrong's life and career. But I was like, you know, Neil Armstrong was somebody who was revered in this community, right? I feel like Michael Collins was, like, worshipped almost by people. And let me explain what I mean by that i don't know what it is i think maybe it was because he was very humble he was humble like we've heard that a lot in the last few days but he truly was like if you talk to him i talked to him a couple times he was um he was just really like oh yeah you know wasn't you know he was he would always try to sort of be very self-deprecating you know he no ego i mean just just no ego at all and um the it was just it's just been crazy like i don't want to I would never mention any names, but in the last few days since he since he died, um, I've had a few friends of mine text me or message me. Some of them have just been like, "I can't stop crying over yeah, this," I, and I'm like, uh, yeah. this, "These are men, you know." And I was just like, I think it was just because he was kind of the Moon Man, who was one of us, I guess.
1: I think I think that's a really good way of putting it and i know i felt the same i messaged you saying i had puffy eyes and and a headache because of because of it i kind of also feel that neil armstrong died before he got the opportunity to be revered by our communities as much i feel yeah there's an element of that as well um and that's Mm -hmm. not to say that that what Mike's getting now isn't deserved. It is deserved, but because of the way the internet has developed since 2012, we now have. I I didn't see on my when Neil Armstrong died. I didn't see any outpouring from people I knew or people or in a community anywhere, and I felt isolated in my grief for the fact that Neil had died. And now I have a community of people I can turn to, and not have to bug my friends and family about it, and just be like oh my God, this has happened and, and I can see things and, and and hear personal accounts of him and hear stories that I would never have seen otherwise because of the nature of various groups, which, you know, you're a huge part of setting up one of the key ones. And we didn't have that. In, maybe we did have that in 2012 when Neil died, but I, I didn't know of it. So
0: it wasn't as big. Back then, it was probably, we probably had like 100 people in the group by that point, so it definitely was not as well known. Yeah. And there was an outpouring, but it it was a different circumstance because Neil died, I feel like it was almost like Neil sort of died before he got his due, almost, like, yeah, there was an autobiography about him, and uh, there's a great autobiography about him that was out First Man by Jim Hansen. You know, and, and not to take away from Armstrong's accomplishments or life at all, but I feel like it was like he died almost before people sort of recognized. Okay, this is this is how you know important this man was. I, I feel like, especially in the space community, I feel like he he died before there could almost be sort of this outpouring of okay, we lost somebody big. You know, whereas Mike Collins, it's a little di- it's a di- little different.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I- I think it's interesting to note that I think all the Apollo astronauts seem to have found more fame in the last ten years, even Buzz. Oh yeah. Uh, so maybe it would be off the charts with Neil now, but also with Mike writing his books, which connected to so many, and attending to attending events to reach out to people, which Neil didn't do. Maybe he would have done, but he didn't do them then. Um, it's kind of easy to see why within the community this is such a big event. Plus. There are now only ten people left to have been to the moon, and we therefore have to start thinking that the end of this era really is soon. And I know we don't like to think like that, but but it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was already a small fraternity to start with. I mean, when you know, fifty years ago, that was a small fraternity, and now it's gotten just even smaller. I mean, there's not many. Oh boy, I'm getting emotional. There's just not many left. Yeah, you know, and there's. I don't want to think about it. <laughs> I don't want to think about it.
1: Eve do I, but I do I do think it factors into how each of these these deaths impact us. But I also I also feel that there is a shock element to this. There was a there was a full sense of security in him being around, partly because he had a social media presence and I know yeah. that I know that they were run by his family, that those accounts, but it still made him seem so alive. Uh there was a post just a day or so before the the announcement of his death. And as far as I'm aware, it wasn't public knowledge that he was even ill. Yeah, I didn't know. So even though he was old, I, I just wasn't
0: expecting this to happen now. Yeah, it felt like that, honestly, Um, without Warden as well. because Yeah, I and, agree. Because people are like, oh, he was 88, you know, and the same thing with Mike. You know, he was 90, he lived a long life. Yeah, they both lived great long lives, but they weren't done. Like, you have this feeling like... They really weren't done yet. Like they were still sharp, you know. Yeah, they were older, you know, but you still felt when you talked to them or if you were in the same room with them, they still had a lot of life to live. They weren't just, you know, these elderly men or something like that. Um, they still had energy, you know, they were still vital. Um, you couldn't tell them they weren't in the prime of their life. <laughs> yeah. So it, it just you get a feeling that, yeah, you know, they are in their late 80s and some are in their early 90s, but you just feel like they weren't done yet. So I totally understand. It was almost like, what? He he can't die. He's, he's Mike Collins. He's not
1: allowed to. Yeah, he's he's going to be hit forever. He's
0: Mike Collins. He can't go, you know? So yeah, when I was getting messages, you know, from male, you know, friends of mine who were like, I just can't stop crying today. You know, I was like, wow. It was more than one person who was like, you know, I feel like a whole era just died. It was a shock. Like this, you just felt like he's not, he wasn't done yet.
1: Yeah. And I think... What's beautiful about the current era is we have got this wonderful opportunity to to see and hear so much outpouring of celebration of his life, and that's what we're we're attempting to do here. There's been some wonderful posts across the internet from so many people who either knew him or met him or had some kind of personal story or a relationship with him that we wouldn't have seen many years ago and 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 buzzes tweets and social media posts of you know I know they weren't close friends, but you know he's he's the, someone that's heavily associated with him uh and it's just wonderful to see all these little stories and these little nuggets come out so uh for me, I've been pouring through them over the last last few days and really enjoying that as well
0: yeah that to see some of the stories and stuff um it, it's been a great comfort through this time, you feel like um Oh, God. Now I'm really going to start crying. Uh, I think uh, a friend of mine sent me this clip a few weeks ago when Phil Chapman died, and I think it's very appropriate now. It's the Star Trek Rathokan. He's not really dead as long as we remember him. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay,
1: I'll stop. Do you know there's... Uh, the ancient Egyptians believe you die twice. This is deep. <laughs> the ancient Egyptians believe you die twice. Once when you're your physical body passes, but secondly, when the last person speaks your name. And in that sense, I don't believe Mike's ever going to die because I think he's always going to be talked about.
0: I agree. Yeah, he's always... As long as he's written and spoken about, which will be for a very long time, he's always going to be here.
1: He's always going to be here, exactly. So I think we should uh, now get on... To, uh, to introduce our guest today uh, as we do more to celebrate the life of Mike Collins. So, uh, Emily, please introduce him.
0: Francis French is a space historian who has written a number of books with astronauts and about the Apollo era. Uh, many of you probably know him uh, from book titles, uh, In the Shadow of the Moon uh, and uh, Falling to Earth, among uh, many others. He also used to be a director of the San Diego Air and Space Museum, amongst many other jobs, which make him one of the leading voices about space exploration history. We hope that he will join us again in the future to talk about a number of topics which we know he's an expert in. But today we present to you our celebration of the life of Michael Collins.
1: So welcome, Francis French. Thanks for joining us on Space and Things to celebrate the life of Mike Collins. Um, Now, I don't know where to start with this, to be honest. Um, When you think of Mike Collins, what's the first thing that's come to your head?
2: Well, thanks for asking me to come today. I I love the fact you say celebrate because that's the second I think of Mike Collins, I have a smile on my face, even though this is a really sad week and we've lost him. He is the kind of guy who brings a grin because he was so nice and there's nothing bad to say about this guy. You know, as Emily and I have gossiped about over the years at various space events, there's normally something you can say about something somebody that's not 100% positive. Mike Collins, thank goodness. Lovely, lovely guy. I mean, everything. He, he was a credible test pilot. Everybody who flew with him in aviation or in space talks about what an amazing guy he was. Um, hard worker, incredible pilot. But he was a well-rounded guy i mean he's he loved food he loved good wine when he was going through the astronaut um, program and he was asked to grade various types of space food he did it like a gastronomical french guide i mean he had fun (laughs) with this stuff you know and you'd think you know being on apollo 11 the ultimate um space mission probably then and still now the the first moon landing you, you might have a bit of a big ego. And, and each of the three people on that mission all went in very different directions, um, mentally and um, career-wise, after that. And he's just the guy who was self-deprecating, wry, funny. You couldn't compliment him. It was really annoying. You tell him what a great book he'd read or something. He's like, rah, 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 rah. you know, just wouldn't wouldn't take a compliment at that. But that's how he was. He was just a, a lovely, lovely guy. So a life well lived and how to deal with fame. Mm.
1: Yeah, and, and my, my understanding—I've heard him say a few times that he really didn't—he didn't even like the concept of fame, let alone the fact that he had it. And I think that says a lot about him as well. Um, so, Emily or Francis, feel free to, to to jump in and give a kind of highlight of his career, which you think that are things that obviously Apollo Eleven we'll get onto. But what are the other things that about Mike's career? Um, that you think are things that people need to know that they don't know
0: oh wow uh well i probably stole from uh francis here but uh people really need to know that he wrote what probably is the gold standard of astronaut autobiographies uh that that to me is i mean probably one of the first things uh casual observers need to know uh carrying the fire uh everyone needs to read that 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 is just the best astronaut autobiography and there's a lot of good ones. So, uh, not to down uh, other ones <laughs> falling to earth. But, <laughs> but, um, Carrying the Fire, I think really set the template for the astronaut autobiography. Like, I think it's one that other people, other astronauts probably look at and say, okay, this is what I have to go up against, or this is what, you know, I'm inspired by. Um, he kind of, Uh, introduced a lot of tropes i think and and, uh, when i say that i don't give that a negative connotation but um in carrying the fire he introduced a lot of things that sort of endure in like other astronaut autobiographies like he i don't think he introduced this but he sort of (laughs) perfected the talking about his fellow colleagues without being too insulting like there's this great part in carrying the fire where he sort of talks about each of his colleagues and um You know, sort of, you know, describes what kind of personalities they are. And uh, that to me, when I first read that book years ago, was just fascinating because it's like, okay, I feel like we're getting to kind of know some of these people, you know, and um, and you also get to know Mike and, uh, you know, obviously, which is wonderful. I mean, he's so not full of himself. He's very funny. He's very uh, self-deprecating. He rates himself as being lazy and Carrying the Fire, which I think is hysterical because I'm like, dude, you you were on Apollo 11. How are you lazy? Like, what? I mean, it's just such an amazing book. I, I, I really can't do it justice just by me uh, talking about it, really. It, it's just got, it, you have to read it. If you haven't read it yet, you got to read it.
1: I, I agree with that. And, and Francis, as someone who's written books with astronauts, as Emily alluded to there, do you feel that there is a pressure when you're writing books with other astronauts these days to compete with carrying the fire or, or, or does that not come into it but as Emily said this kind of set the, the standard and it was done in 1974 or published in 1974 so it was so close back then to all the action is it something that, that comes up in conversations when you're talking to, to to astronauts about their books or is it in the back of your head at, at, at all when you're you're writing these books and and finishing the product
2: yeah that's a great question i'm not sure um competition is exactly the right word but everything you said in terms of it being a healthy impetus is absolutely true because there's a certain point it like it'd be like being a heavyweight boxer now and trying to be muhammad ali it's like forget mm. it he's going to be the greatest ever so you can just try and do what you can mm. to learn from lessons of other people um The great thing, there were challenges that Carrying the Fire gave me and Al Warden from Apollo 15 when we wrote his book, Falling to Earth, uh, that Emily mentioned. One was that I really noticed the closer to the program, the better the books, the more visceral, original, fresh stuff. And as you started getting into the 80s and the 90s, they started becoming a little bit more like speeches I'd heard the astronauts give. They're still full of great information, but they don't feel quite so in the moment. So one of the things I really tried to take from Carrying the Fire was he wrote that right after it happened. He wasn't done with Apollo 11 until 1970. He wasn't done with NASA for a while afterwards. For it to come out in 74, he must have hit the ground running, writing it Mm. right away. So how do we get back to that fresh feeling? So that was where I was going back into original transcripts, original interviews, um, and with Al just picking very fresh stuff. What was it like in that room? How did it feel? What did it smell like? What did you hear? Trying to get those firsthand impressions to get back to that book that he could have written, you know, back in 1970, something that he didn't. So that was a close one. I don't think there's going to be a book as good as that. There've been some shuttle ones like Mike Mullane's that have come close um, to being in that sort of top pantheon. But anytime that somebody said, this is in my, well, Falling to Earth is in my top three with Carrying the Fire being, of course, the number one, it's just a given. That felt good. Anytime it got compared to it, close, I was like, okay, that's good, because no, you, you could never. Compete with it, but you could hope to approach it. That was the best we could do.
1: And, and what what do you think, uh, Francis, are, are some of the things that aren't remembered as well about his career, particularly his astronaut career? We'll get on to uh, what he did after NASA in a little while. But, but obviously, Apollo 11 everyone knows. But are there other things you think he achieved as an astronaut or as a pilot which you think aren't celebrated enough? Uh, and and things that we should be talking about this week in particular
2: oh absolutely i mean apollo 11 there's a lot that we 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 can get onto the role of the command module pilot it's always the you know there's been so many ob- obits this week about the forgotten astronaut which is a horrible thing to read but it's also kind of true he's the one you he's the george harrison of the apollo 11 he's the <laughs> one named everybody goes there's john and paul and then of course ringo and then who's that other guy you know it's, it's always the the other guy that's left out um but yes, absolutely, this Gemini stuff is insane. The stuff they were doing on those Gemini missions that he was in the middle of. I mean, he and John Young, they get on a, on a Gemini spacecraft, they launch an Agena uncrewed rocket before that, gets into orbit, they dock with it, and then nose to nose, they fire that uncrewed rocket to send them into a higher orbit. So if you could imagine, they're both sitting in what is essentially like a two-person fighter jet seat like the Gemini is, looking out of little windows Looking at another rocket, which then fires and pushes them back into their straps. So they're hanging at one one G, the same weight as we are on Earth, in their straps, watching, looking down on a rocket that's pushing them back first up into space. Nobody flies in space like that, back first, looking at the rocket with all the flame coming out of it. They did, I think they fired that thing three times to get into the final orbit they get up into, where they then rendezvous with the another Agena that the one that Neil Armstrong by Collins' eventual commander had had so much trouble with, the one that had almost killed him. They find this dead spacecraft, and then they go, he tries to EVA over to it, tries to do a spacewalk over to it, and they don't know how to do spacewalks. I mean, they know enough that they think it's going to be like a movie, you just sort of float out there with a little gas gun in your hand. And so he you know, he he gets his foot snagged on the door and goes, sort of like tumbles over and almost hits something. He He jumps out another time and gets pushed around to the back of the spacecraft and hits it. They, they have this big umbilical cord for the oxygen and for the, um, you know, for all, and the radio communications and things, and it's like mm. taking a, a garden hose that's been sitting out in the sun for summer after summer that won't unkink properly, and you think you can just sort of fly smoothly over to another spacecraft and grab hold of it. Of course, this hose is going to whip you around and pull you in different directions and nothing like what they thought. He gets over there, he can hardly get this, there's, there's no handholds. He's going to try and get his gloved hand onto a bit of spacecraft Newton's law is eternal. He starts holding on to something. The whole spacecraft starts shimming around and trying to buck him off. You know, it's, they didn't know what they were doing. And somehow in the middle of all this, Mike Collins managed to get over there, pull off a piece of um, an experiment they put on the side to see what happened if something was left in space a long time, manages to not cut his glove on a huge bundle of wires and other sharp metal objects that could have cut through his spacesuit and still manages to get back to the spacecraft, bring it back in. I mean if he'd never gone on apollo 11 that kind of stuff is just you know wild west insanity of the sort of the original frontier of spaceflight where they're just doing stuff that nobody would even think about doing and they and some of that stuff has never been done again and probably for good reason but they were learning as they went and mike was a a fortunate survivor of that era
1: that's a really interesting way of looking at it and i've seen his um his gemini 10 suit as well it, there's nothing of it it, it was such a it, they, they don't look worthy of an EVA compared to the the big bulky suits that then went on the moon and what they used in the shuttle era those Gemini suits just and there's nothing of them it's like a it's like a pressure suit and that's it and to think that he put himself at that risk and he was the first person to do two spacewalks on one mission i' I'm, I'm writing that I think I'm writing that
2: Yeah, they did some things where they basically opened the hatch and threw junk out and stood in the seat and things like that. So they did. It it really depends on how you count it. Yeah, but um, it was. um, But just just yeah, having a rocket and going finding another rocket in space and all that stuff. All all three of the Apollo eleven astronauts all did amazing stuff on Gemini um, with rendezvous with with and then EVA with Mike Collins. And then of course Buzz Aldrin is the one who, on the very last seat on the very last Gemini mission, is the one who goes. We need to stop and instead of trying to do things, just learn how to do this. We need handholds. We need foot restraints. We need tethers. And he practiced in swimming pools like a ballet dancer, like the the movement of, okay, if I go here, I'm going to not make myself flip over this way. And Buzz was the guy on the very last mission who actually worked it out. So all those Gemini guys before that, like Mike, were just hoping for the best and trying things and getting back and going, well, that didn't work. What do we do next time?
1: Yeah, learning from your mistakes when the stakes are that high, why not? Anyway, moving on to the Apollo program. So obviously Mike has spoken in depth and in many interviews about the fact that he was happy with his seat on Apollo 11, but I've not heard him talk as much. I know he talks about in his book, obviously, um, about the fact he was originally on the Apollo 8 crew, uh, but... Had an op, I needed to have an operation on his neck, so didn't end up on that flight, ended up on Apollo 11 instead. Do you know if he would have preferred to have been on Apollo 8 rather than the seat he had on Apollo 11?
2: Hmm. I don't know whether he ever actually said much about which one he personally preferred. I know he spoke a lot about why they were both really important missions. I think he talked about um, Apollo 8 as leaving Earth and Apollo 11 as arriving somewhere else, if I recall. Hmm. Um, they're both vital missions, and uh, they're both you know, a huge part of what humanity has done. Um, when it comes to whether he wanted to land, I think he did say he was under no illusions. He didn't have the best seat in the on the mission. But a lot of people forget, you know, if you're a pilot, the lunar module pilot job, you're not piloting anything. You're a systems engineer. You're checking and helping the commander to land. Once you get on the moon and you get to do geology and other things, you're pretty much an equal. But if you're a pilot and you care a lot about flying, that's not a great seat. It depends what you you care about. If you're a command module pilot, you are the the person who does almost all the flying on the mission. You get them to the moon, you get them back. You are in charge of a solo spacecraft that is the only way home. Um, And if the lunar module has a problem and it can lift off, but only barely and get into some kind of weird low orbit, you have to know how to zip down there and find them and save all three people. Or you go home alone, which is another whole job that, you know, a three-person job that you're doing on your own. This is a really difficult piloting job. So if you care about piloting, that's a pretty big task. Um, so a lot of people forget that that was actually the number two position, not not the, you know, the lunar module pilot was a relatively lowly thing. And if you're a test pilot like Mike Collins, that's a, you know, that's a big deal to be, you have to sail, save Neil and Buzz and get them back from the moon if needed. You know, that's that's that's, that's no small job. You know, there's nothing... Nothing to be ashamed of in that job.
1: Yeah, and he had a a little book which he'd written of 18 different rendezvous uh, scenarios which he may have had to have attempted depending on how Neil and Buzz got off the moon. Of course, there was a chance they may not go off at all. I wonder what training they did for that scenario and, and how he felt about that, I know he said that he only actually thought there was a 50-50 chance of them completing this mission.
2: I think that the thing is that there's not, there's no training to come back solo from the moon because you're doing the same procedures as if all three of you were there because you're the one flying. So that's mm. the thing that people forget. He's actually the one flying that stuff. So in that way, in terms of training, it's simple. In terms of emotionally, in terms of how you think about it, we, we forget that most of these people were combat pilots as well. They've been in situations where people were actively trying to kill them. The great thing about the Apollo program is everybody was actively trying to save their lives, including, as we saw with Apollo 13, the whole world, the Cold War enemies. Everybody was like, what can we do? Kind of nice, you know, mm-hmm. when you've had people shooting at you in Korea and Vietnam and sometimes even in World War II, some of those astronauts were old enough that this is a kind of a, a nice place to be. But it's true that you... Definitely have to think about that stuff. If they were stuck on the surface, there's nothing a command module pilot could do. I mean, they're stuck on the surface, they can't take off. You have to leave them behind. Probably stay as long as you can until you are down to your last little bit of oxygen because the people on the ground, people landed on the moon, are not going to just give up. You know, if it's a case of like one of us can get off, if the other person stands outside and hotwires the thing, that's better than both of us dying, they would do stuff like that. They were, you know, they were test pilots, they were military folks, they knew the risks. But if there was any kind of orbit that those guys could get off the moon and into, that was, what I think, what they would have tried to have done. They would have tried to try and launch, I'll try and get to you, let's give it a go, even if that means risking the command module as well. That seemed to have been the, um, the quid pro quo in all this, that I can't speak for every individual crew, but that seems to have been the general Apollo thing to do. If you can get off the surface in any way, we'll try and get you. If you're stuck there, you've got to go home.
0: Uh, I think it was, I don't know, it wasn't Mike Collins, but I think Al Worden, uh if I'm incorrect, please, Francis, please correct me. I think Al Warden basically said he had to come to terms with, okay, what if I'm the only one coming back? You know, because you just didn't, I mean, it sounds so fatalistic and awful, but it's like, that's a possibility, you know? It's something you have to kind of mentally wrap your head about. So I know he discussed it. I don't know if Collins ever... Did I know? Collins said he developed an eye tick, and eye twitch.
2: Most of the time, it was the the folks on the ground and the mission controllers were the ones obsessing and worrying about this. Yes. Particularly in like the early human missions, like you know with Yuri Gagarin, they're like, "Is he sleeping okay the night before? And is he this? And is he that?" And most of these folks are like, "Just leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. I know the risk. Yeah. Just, just <laughs> let me go. You stop worrying. You're worrying me by worrying about it. You know." So I
0: think they had it. They they had it.
2: They knew what was up. Yeah, we're probably doing the same thing here. We're probably, you know, obsessing with worry about stuff. Which these guys are like, you know, if I die, I, I did, I gave it my best. The thing that really seems to have battered is, if I die, I don't want it to be my fault. If the mission goes wrong and we don't make it, that's one thing. If it's like Apollo Eleven fails because Mike Collins pressed the wrong switch and that's the headline, then it's like I'd rather die. I'd rather not come home. You know, that's that seems to have been the thing. Is not making a mistake is way more important than, than life or death.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm get your head around that. Um, and another thing for, for me to get my head around. So when I think of Mike Collins, I think of honesty. Uh, and I'm sure reading and the Fire has something to do with that. But also this last week, um, there's been so many stories about his character. There was a guy talking on the BBC this week, who I think was part of the 13, Man, uh, 13 Minutes to the Moon podcast. And they interviewed Mike as part of that. And apparently when he turned up... His daughters turn around, uh, Mike Collins' daughters turn around to him and said, look, look, if you ask a stupid question, he will tell you it's stupid. Um... But if you ask a good question, he'll go on for hours. So there's this honesty with him. Now, my one experience of Mike Collins in the flesh was at this event at GW University in Washington, D.C. as part of the 50th anniversary. And the thing that really took me by surprise was he was talking about the Apollo 11 mission, and he seemed genuinely surprised. Looking back at it, I don't know if this is a hindsight thing, but the thing he said was, we actually did it. And he said it almost... With surprise in his voice, I know he said. I said earlier that he only gave them fifty percent chance of it being successful. But even now, he looks back with that "we did this" kind of surprise. And knowing how honest I know that he is, and how honest uh, people have said he is, hearing that from him
0: is almost surprising. You look at the Apollo Eleven, the movie, uh, the IMAX movie, and it kind of has the steps of you know the whole mission broken down kind of simplistically i i don't think until i watched that entire movie because there's a lot of nasa apollo films and they're not of the of the era and they're not bad i don't want to diss them but they're kind of you know of their time they got some cheesy music in them you know they're kind of yeah they're they kind of other they got some star trek like music and they're just they're okay (laughs) you know and You don't really, and it's some dry narrator talking over it like, you know, and stuff like that. They're not bad, but when I watched the movie Apollo 11 in IMAX, I finally got this sense of, I think, I mean, with all the reading I've done about Apollo, with everything I've looked at about Apollo probably in my life, I got this sense of there were so many steps that just had to go off like that, like without a hitch. Not just the crew members, but each person... Who had a job during apollo and i'm not just talking about mission control i'm talking about people who built the vehicle you know and people who had support roles that we don't we don't people who aren't famous you know it's just everything just had to contribute to that for it to go off a certain way it, it's really just I'll, I'll shut up it's more it's more like my mind is sort of blown that this went off perfectly because you'd like to see that kind of thing happen nowadays but it's I feel like things are a little different. I don't know. It, it just blows my mind that that all went off, you know, perfectly, and I think it went off perfectly throughout the entire program, which says a lot. So it's just, yeah. And obviously, Mike Collins was a little, you know, a he would argue he was a little piece of that. You're absolutely
2: right, Emily. I mean, that you think about when the Apollo One fire was January '67, they didn't get flying again till October of '68. The next summer, they're on the moon. They've not mm. just into the moon they've done apollo 7 8 9 10 and 11 and they've landed on the moon you know what yeah you know nothing went wrong none of those got delayed nothing happened I mean, it's just i have to say yeah these days if you had a fire like that for uh, uh, in january of 67 they'd still be writing a report in summer of 69 they wouldn't be on the moon you know it is absolutely incredible what they did and then there's the other side of what you know, like dave was saying about how impossible magical this seems which is It was this weird bit of the mid-21st century that kind of got thrown into the 1960s, 20th century. And for four years, we went to the moon and then we've never been back. It it is magical, impossible. And I do understand the people who are skeptics initially when they get into the nut job theories, forget it. But when the first people go like, we can't have done that because you look at it and you're like, I looked at the moon last night. And I'm like, we went there. How did we do that? You know, it, it does seem impossible. So I can totally understand why. Somebody who even did it would be
1: surprised he did it. Yeah.
2: All right, you are go for TLI, okay? all right? Roger, understand. We're going for TLI. I,
1: I now think we should move on to his post NASA career and just just briefly look at that. So he went to work for the State Department and then ended up at the, running the Smithsonian uh, or setting up the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. And I think they're they're. That's a, a really crucial job that I think is a part of his life, which he's so proud of as well. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was at this event at... Uh... GW University which kind of was was a combination of these two because it was a Smithsonian event that was at the state department and he was talking about space diplomacy which kind of sums up this whole thing and it also ties in with Apollo 11 because they went on this big world tour and they were diplomats on that tour and he said some some really lovely things he told some great obviously in his classic way he told some very in- funny stories great story about uh, about prince philip and his frayed shirt uh, and which which are very much- much enjoyed um, but he really and I wrote this down so this is a little diary I wrote at that for my trip for the Apollo 50th um, anniversary and uh, I can barely read my own writing because I was trying to write so much in such a short space of time but I wrote this he's, he's truly inspiring and everyone needs to hear him talk he talked about the fragile earth um, and and about how he had the world in his window and the, uh, it. <laughs> Can some of the manifestations of the fragility be overcome? Yes, if we put our minds to it. Um, and this this is one. And, and Emily, it's weird that we we kind of talked about this last week in last week's podcast. He said this, that the US should be a friendly power in the world, not overbearing. And that a unified approach to space goals should be used. It might be slower but it's more important. And, and it seems to me that he he really, did, straight away, this he had those opinions then, and they've just carried on through his life, that he had these bigger ideas and ideals of what space can and can and should be, and was an advocate for that, and used his, his voice within setting up the Smithsonian and his role within the State Department to try and vocalise those ideas, and he kept doing it throughout his life. I found that kind of stuff super inspiring, but if either if of you have any insight to either, the, either of those jobs, please, please f- jump in right now.
0: What I love about what he did with um, as far as the Smithsonian, the State Department, and all that, you know, all those roles that he did, Um I don't want to diss anybody that he may have flown with, but um, Francis is laughing here. Um, <laughs> I, I think in those roles, you know, especially with heading up the Smithsonian and really is, you know, really him being sort of a public face during that time, because he was still, you know, Mike Collins, the Apollo 11 astronaut. He, he had a, he wasn't as famous as Buzz and Neil, but he had a certain level. He had a certain level of fame. We'll just put it that way. Um, him being sort of the face of that really ushered in. And, and there's probably more variables really ushered in like the era of the great space museum, you know, where, you know people were excited this was like a destination like hey let's go to the Smithsonian you know let's go to Air and Space Museum um i remember <laughs> of course i'm a space nerd but you know me and my husband when we were dating we uh we used to go to Washington DC every so often because we lived in virginia so we'd just drive over to DC and the first place steve would want to go would be like hey i want to go see the Air and Space Museum and i'm like you're not really into...
2: S- Marry that man. Marry yeah. him. Marry him now. <laughs> exactly. I know. I was like,
0: okay, I think I found him. But, um,
1: <laughs>
0: but no, but and Steve's really, he likes space flight, you know, but he's not like obsessed. Like he, you know, he can, he, he, he has a lot of background knowledge, but he's not like a friggin' nutcase. Like I am as far as space <laughs> is concerned. So when he said that, I was like, what, you know, that's yeah. I want to go see, you know, Columbia. I want to see the command module. And I was like, what? Uh, Okay, you know, we'll go see it. But that was a place that, you know, sort of a more casual fan was like, I gotta go and see that, you know, because it's, you know, and I was like, I mean, and I feel like Mike Collins is a huge, you know, variable in why people want to go see it. He was sort of a public face. He, you know, I'm sure there were things that he wanted for the museum that are there. I don't think he gets his dues for really ushering in the whole era of, like, the Destination Air and Space Museum, you know, whereas, you know, people want to you know, a place that people like, hey, I got to go see that if I'm in D.C. Some of his colleagues have done different things, um, you know, have done like sort of rap songs and uh, I don't even know how to put this, um, have done some other things and I'm trying not to be critical of it, you know, but I feel like Collins's legacy, you know, while he was very who he was, he was very he was sort of quiet, very dignified, very elegant. You know, didn't really court the spotlight, had had a lot of criticisms about celebrity, which I think is awesome. Um, Collins really made a huge impact in his own way. I don't think people know it as much, but he still did it. I mean, for my boyfriend, you know, at the time to be like, hey, we got to go see the Air and Space Museum. I was like, what? You know, I mean, that that to me speaks to Collins's legacy that somebody who's really not into space would want to go. Yeah, I want to go see Apollo 11. I want to go see that stuff. You know, that's really important. And I'm like, okay, you know, that really speaks to his legacy in ways that, you know, uh, I think I I just think it needs to be noted. It's it's really awesome. That's
2: Very true, Emily. I mean, that museum, you know, I'm a museum person and, and it's the only place in the world I can think of where in one view you could see a human flown Mercury, Gemini and Apollo spacecraft in one view. Not the only place that has those. Kennedy Space Center has them, but they're in different rooms. Houston has had them on and off, depending on whether the Mercury spacecraft was on loan or not. In California, you can see the three of them in a row, but one of them was flown by a chimp, which is not quite the same thing. But you go to there and you could see not only those three in one view, but you could see the first, you know, powered Wright Brothers plane for a while there. You could see the first plane that broke the sound barrier. You could see the first solo crossing of the Atlantic, all in one view. And Mm. it's only now decades after Mike Collins you know, was instrumental in setting up that museum that they're changing that because having them hanging from the ceiling having them in bright sunshine with a a, a bright light um, roof wasn't necessarily the best thing for them for what we know now but in terms of impact when you walked in yeah I mean what what drama and then to see that little charred husk of a Columbia left and to think from that you know that original Saturn V rocket you know to, as tall as the Statue of Liberty with its pedestal, this little bit is left, and even then you can never use it again. Just gave you a sense of the whole impact and scale of the mission. Without having to have any interpreters, any signage, any context, you could just look at that, all that and go, wow. So yeah, what a what an incredible thing he did. But why was he there? Why was he doing that? You know, there's a the Apollo guys, there was a tiny little window where you could get a great job or nothing. And, and it's so much to do with Apollo, how Apollo was, was perceived by the public. If the when the Apollo eight folks came back, um, and then the Apollo 11 folks came back. The, Richard Nixon, you know, what they, he realized the allure of having astronauts around him. Frank Borman got a great job. Um, Bill Anders became the most successful post-Apollo astronaut ever. And the same with Mike Collins, the same with Neil Armstrong, who stayed at NASA for a little bit until he decided he wanted to go off and do something else. The world was theirs. You had the president of the United States saying, what government job do you want? Just, just name it. I'll, I'll give it to you. By the time you came back from like Apollo 13 or 14, you're like, oh yeah, you guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's the whole allure had gone. So if you were quick, like Frank Borman was, you could you could jump onto something really quick. And and Mike was absolutely right. As you say, he was a diplomat type, he was classy, and he could do something like put through a major project like that, which I mentioned, it's taken half a century for them to even think about a redesign. It's been that that is very rare in any kind of museum where you're like, Let's keep that for a long time now they've changed it, but it it endured that's for
1: sure I said this a few times when I walked in there I couldn't believe what I was seeing and I was in there mid refurb so they, they'd removed some of the artifacts Columbia wasn't in there that had been moved out and it was on tour and and some other artifacts weren't in there but in my mind I was like, how do you ensure this place? this has got the most priceless artifacts in one room. Why would you put them all in one room? That's ridiculous. But it's so in- at the same time as you say that level of awe-inspiring. Wow, we're in the we're in the capital. All of this is here in one room, and you can't help but just be like, "This is incredible." The X fifteen just hanging there casually with some dust on it, uh, as you as you said, not not just a Gemini and a Mercury capsule, but you've got the first orbit and the- and and. The first American spacewalk, along with a, a real lunar module, of which there are only two or three left. It's crazy what was in that one room, as well as not not forgetting the other aeroplanes that are in there, that are, are also incredible artefacts in themselves. And there's that one photo of him before it opened, which is possibly my favourite <laughs> photo of Mike Collins, just sitting there with his doing his paperwork at the bottom of an, of the escalator, and. If there's not a more iconic photo of him, I don't, I don't know. I think I, I love all the photos of him in space, but that one photo I just think sums him up. Just quietly going about his business in the middle of that room is just wonderful.
2: It is a great picture. I love that picture. I hate that escalator because that's where <laughs> I get stuck. So my first book comes out. I'm at the I'm at the Smithsonian. They're asking me to do a book signing, the store is right opposite there. And you sit at this table, and you can see the Columbia spacecraft from there, and you feel great. And the first person comes to the table, and they're like, where are the restrooms? And that's what I do for the rest of the day. You know, I, I did sign some books, had a lot of people come by. But most of my time was, they're over there on the left. You know, <laughs> I, So, yeah, never get it. Never get a book signing in that particular spot, because that's
0: what you end <laughs> up doing. Mike probably did this on purpose. Like, he probably had the layout <laughs> like that on purpose, so he could troll, like, other authors. Because maybe at some point he figured out that was, okay, that happened to me, so now everybody's going to have to go through this. Like It <laughs> seems like a mic thing. So yeah, that's funny.
1: Absolutely. So um, do, do either of you have personal mic stories, which I think you, you would like to share? I've, I've done, my, I mean, my only one, I was sitting in the audience of him, and I thoroughly enjoyed hearing him talk, but... Um, I, I know that both of you have met him and spent time with him, maybe, so if you have personal stories or anything you think you'd like to share right now, please do.
0: Mine's actually really short. Uh, I, I I regret to say I, I didn't talk to him a lot. Dur- I saw him a lot during Space Fest, but I didn't talk to him a lot, mainly because he was with his family, and I was kind of like, I felt weird about bugging him when his daughters were there, you know, because um, he was very close to his He had a really, you could just tell he had a wonderful relationship with his kids. He just, they just seemed to be such a warm and, you know, very close family, which was uh, really cool to see. I really loved that. But uh, I, the first Space Fest I went to was in 2016 and uh, I was talking to a friend of mine. I was like, God, that's Mike Collins, man. I want to talk to him, but I'm terrified. My friend's like, why? He's he's really nice. And I was like, well, it's Mike Collins. you know." So my friend was like, Let's just go over and just go over and talk to him, man. And he was actually, there was nobody at his uh, table at the time, which was rare. So they were like, just go over there and talk to him. You know, he's not going to hurt you. So I was like, <laughs> okay, I'll go over and talk to him. So I go over, you know, and I said, you know, uh, General Collins, you know, and then he was like, <laughs> he was like, just call me Mike. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, so Mike, um, yeah, I just wanted. to. I don't want to bother you, but I just wanted to say, you know, carrying the fire I think is the greatest astronaut autobiography ever. You know, I, I, have read it probably hundreds of times and, you know, thanks for doing that. And he just gave me this big warm smile and said, why do you read such smut? <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. And he, and uh, then I was like, can I get a picture? He's like, yeah, you know, of course. So he puts his arm around me and we get a picture and he just, he had a smile in the picture, so I'd like to believe he liked. He actually liked me because sometimes it, um, he he's not one of those people you see smile in pictures a lot. He's kind of stoic. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that that's that's really my only memory of him. And I've talked to a few other people who had like the same. Like they'd be like, "Man, I love carrying the fire." And he's like, "Oh, whatever. You know, that's just something little I wrote. You know, over a few weekends on some yellow legal paper." And I'm like, "What? Like?" <laughs> Like he made it sound like he just, you know, had a notebook. He was like, yeah, whatever, you know, not a big deal. And it's like the greatest book anybody's probably ever done, you know, just he's just anybody who can say that their book is smut. Um, I just thought he was just the warmest. Just I was like, man, this has got to be like the most warm, funny guy, you know, ever after leaving that. I was like, man, he's really he is really as cool as people say he is. He, he's really great.
2: Space Fest is the place to meet all of these people because it is that relaxed atmosphere. I mean, it's happening when in July, it's, it's happening again. Um, and, it, and it is the way you get to interact with people. And one of the great things is I, this week, I've seen a lot of people say, oh, I regret I saw him talking with his family, and I didn't want to annoy him or upset him. And so I never went to say hi. And I feel like I should say, don't regret that. You know, never regret not bugging somebody when they're with their family and maybe don't want to be disturbed. Um, But he was an incredibly warm guy for when people did come up and say hi and he was in a public situation. And um, he was there because he was an artist, not because he was an astronaut. He was selling his watercolors because unlike so many of these people, he knew when to retire, you know? He actually, most of these guys want to live forever. Most of these guys think they're still 20 and they're still chasing the same women they were when they were 20, you know? Um, but he he was like, I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go watercoloring. I'm going to enjoy life. And every now and then I'm going to get dragged to something in DC and have to say my thing and that's fine. But most of the time I want to enjoy my retirement, enjoy my family. What a wonderful way to, to do that for the last sort of rounding out of life. But yes, yeah, such a nice guy and so, and so many good memories And that. I mean, when I was doing um, In the Shadow of the Moon and I really wanted to get obscure stories about like Apollo 7's Don Isley. And I really wanted to get into all that. How did these EVA things happen? Who came up with the idea of underwater training? Who came up with the idea of this and that? And he was just a, not only was he full of knowledge, but he would give you a quote that was like instantly quip, funny, and informative all at once, like the kind of thing it would spend, it take me all day to think of something that clever. And he would just come out <laughs> with it. And it's pretty much verbatim in the books, just, you know, huge chunks of what he told me. I went through those interviews again recently um, before he died, and it was just like, wow, this is good stuff. Um, and this is, you know, getting on for like two decades ago, just great, great stuff. Very classy guy, very, very smart. Last time I saw him that I remember in any meaningful way, I was in... Um, in in New York in 2019 for the Explorers Club, which was another just lovely reunion of all these Apollo folks all got together and very relaxed atmosphere. And uh, there was a lunch uh, that I got invited to in a very fancy club downtown Manhattan. And uh, Buzz was there, um, a bunch of other people were there. And we were sat at a table and then there was a whole bunch of extra spaces and all of a sudden mike and his daughters came over and sat with us and was like oh this is nice this is different <laughs> um didn't think he'd remember who the hell i was and the first thing he says like hey francis you work in any books i'm like okay this is nice just, just i mean that's really the last thing i remember him saying to me of any significance so that's like okay if you're gonna have a nice last memory of somebody that was it yeah great guy
1: i love that that's amazing that's absolutely amazing and, and of course he was a wonderful family man, as we know. And uh one of the one of the images of this last week which has come out, which I've in, I thought was just the most wonderful, was there was a photo of him at the Cosmosphere. We're sitting on the floor, his back against the wall, and there's about twenty kids in front of him, and he was teaching them how to make paper aeroplanes. And I just thought, You're one of the names that in a thousand years people will still be reading about because you're on Apollo 11 and there you are casually chilling out, teaching kids how to make paper airplanes. And I think that says so much about him.
0: I have, um, it's not really, well, it's not a personal story, but I do have a Mike Collins story. Um, I think it was in 2018. I was at the uh, national aviation hall of fame induction. It's like a, big fancy you know gala in Washington DC and it was it was absolutely wonderful but it was kind of intimidating I I hate saying that they're gonna hear this and be like it was intimidating but um (laughs) for me it was intimidating just because everybody there is like a legend you know like everyone like people walk in you're like that's oh my god that's so-and-so that okay that's so-and-so oh my god like I was like real if you have imposter syndrome this is like it's gonna be like You know, your your alarm will be like whoop 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 they're they're all going um, hey
2: it's Emily Carney 20,000 people on Facebook obey her every whim be careful what you say around her it works both ways Emily don't
0: worry (laughs) but um but I remember um I was hanging out with I think with Mark Usiak and I think with um someone else uh and we were just you know chilling and chatting and stuff and you know drinking our our cocktails or whatever and um all of a sudden, like a hush descends over the crowd. I was like, who just walked in? Like, I'm thinking like royalty, like, you know, a prince or princess, somebody like somebody walked in and then I looked behind me and it's Mike Collins. And he was he had like a you know a glass of wine and he was talking like, you know, four or five people, you know, and just being really casual. And some guy who I didn't even know comes up to me and he was like, hey, hey. I don't know if this will pick it up. Hey, you know, that's Mike Collins. Over there, like I'm like, yeah, you know, from Apollo 11, he's really nice, you know, and oh my god, you know, and stuff like that. It was just, um, it kind of struck me that's kind of the level of, I wouldn't say celebrity, that doesn't seem the right word, but that's kind of uh, the love, yeah, that's kind of the level of like importance this person had, you know, and and he was not being like a diva or any, I don't want to make it sound like, you know hey Mike Collins was you know he wasn't being a he was just drinking a glass of wine wearing a tuxedo chilling having a great time but it was like automatically when he entered the room it was like you could hear people like oh my Mm -hmm. god that's him you know and it was just it was just amazing it was like I've never I don't think I've ever seen anything like that happen in my life at an event where somebody just walks in and everything just shuts down like oh my god you know that would that to me just said everything
1: and that's probably a good place to end this conversation. Uh, but, Francis, thank you so much for joining us in sharing. Uh, a little bit about Mike, both his career and your personal stories Uh, and we hope to have you on again sometime because there's so much we could talk to you about about what you do and other things you've worked on and your areas of expertise so I hope we get to talk to you another time if you'd be so willing to give us some more of your time
2: Oh I'd be happy to do so particularly because I've yet to hear Emily's English accent which is the only reason (laughs) I really came here today so you know, (laughs) absolutely
0: Oh my god (laughs) <laughs> oh my god yeah we're probably gonna get to that content with the fake british accent that everybody wants so it's gonna happen, we're, it's gonna we're happen gonna, this month it's gonna happen very soon where we're gonna get back to that fake british accent content that everybody's been asking about i yeah. so, can't probably. wait i can't wait yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right we have we have no intention of competing with the
1: professionals baby so that was a really wonderful conversation with francis thank you again for joining us um there was one thing that actually we spoke about with Francis once we pressed stop on our recording which we didn't bring up and I do feel like it's worth mentioning here and that's the fact that Michael turned down the chance to be the backup commander for Apollo 14 when he got back from Apollo 11 which would have meant he would have commanded Apollo 17 which would have meant he would have walked on the moon and he turned that down knowing full well that although there were budget problems with NASA and no one knew what missions were going on, that Apollo 17 was pretty much certain to happen. But he gave that up because he wanted to spend more time with the family. The whole uh, of Apollo 11 and the training and the training for Gemini 10, he thought took him away from his family too much. And uh, I think it just again goes to show the ego of the man that he didn't feel the need to have to go and do that. He'd been to the moon, he'd achieved what he wanted to achieve, and it was time for someone else to have a go.
0: Yeah, it, there's it's too. I feel like that's too full because there's there's the part where he's like, OK, I got to, you know, it's a lot of stress on my family. And, you know, maybe I should walk. You know, it, it's OK if I walk away from this opportunity, you know, because my family's more important than just going to the moon. And then there's the you know, the kind of the other side of it where he gave somebody else an opportunity who you know, Cernan wouldn't have done, we wouldn't know Cernan is the last man on the moon head. Yeah. That had happened. So, um, so really, you know, in the end, you know, it's kind of a twofold thing there. And um, <laughs> I won't mention any names, but there are guys who probably would have thrown somebody in front of a train to get an opportunity like that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so for him to just say, you know, I, I just want to, you know, kind of retire from that and just spend, you know, time with my family and, Just give someone else the opportunity. To me, that's like, that really shows you what kind of person he was by that, you know. Well, not by that point, just in general. In general, yeah,
1: absolutely. yeah. But yeah, that was just one other thing we wanted to to bring up because it's kind of a key part in the story. But thank you so much for joining us uh, for this celebration of the life of Michael Collins.
0: We'll be back on Thursday on our usual schedule, but please do get in contact with us and tell us your stories and memories of Mike. He's someone we want to learn more about and continue to celebrate.
1: And thanks again to Francis for joining us. And thank you for listening. We'll see you on Thursday. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.